Welcome to Advanced Fashion Disruption, with co-hosts Benson Roberts III and Megan Somerville, where we discuss the tragic, the predatory, the glory, and the deep beauty of fashion. Uh, I'm choking on my own spit, Megan. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you caught me uh, swallowing a, um, a pill. Actually, that was vitamin B12 complex. So uh, we have uh, some exciting things to talk about today. Um, mm -hmm. How are you doing since our last podcast? How are things going for you? I think things are going really good. Like I'm starting to really hone in on what I feel is our vision for this podcast and really getting the message out there in a way that is, okay, yeah, it's a slap in the face or, you know, metaphorically, or it is a wake up call. I hope that these types of discussions are really, really important. Um, and the amount of feedback that we're already getting from, uh, such little content is really heartening because I think people have been really hungry to break that silence wall because it's been really prolific and really bad, <laughs> really oh, bad. You, you know, uh, we both lived in Texas together. So we're aware of something called the good old boys network and fashion mm -hmm. <laughs> as gay and fabulous as it is, it has operated like the good old boys network for a hundred years. And, um, that's something that just has to stop. That is not okay, and it is not helping us to rebuild an American apparel culture or infrastructure at all. And I think that these talks uh, may be useful to some people. Hopefully, they're interesting. Um, they might be a little scandalous, and I certainly do say fuck a lot. I'm from Detroit, people. Uh, I, 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 I do try to hold the F-bombs in, but that's like literally, I'm at the, the uh, corner store today uh, buying some... Um, um, orange juice and there's a woman in there who's 80 she's like the fucking boss was fucking late. and I'm like this is Detroit this is we just talk that way here so please don't be offended and if you are you know write me about it and I'll, I'll tell you to fuck yourself personally um, <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest okay so uh, today we are digging into um, one of the scariest parts of being a young designer or a new designer. And when I say young, by the way, people, I'm not talking chronological, uh, physical, biological age. You can be 70 and starting a company and I consider you a young designer. That's the age of your company when I say young or the age of your concept or the age of your project. So um, most young designers' biggest fear is that they will not sell, right, Megan? Like I won't sell. Oh my right. God, everyone buys it. And honestly, your biggest fear should be, what if you sell a lot? Mm -hmm. Take it away, Megan. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, that marries so tightly to so many aspects about being um, in that fashion umbrella. So, okay, so you've sold something um at what whatever event that you've shown your pieces at well where did you buy your fabric and are you able to get that again is that something that you've thought about or were you just so excited about sharing your concepts um that that was just kind of an afterthought okay but now for whatever reason somebody wants a boutique order of that thing. Have you graded it? <laughs> like it's all just, so, it's just mind boggling. The things that happen after 
that. So I, I'm going to dive right in because you asked a really important question. Where did you get your fabric? Um, picture it, Austin, Texas, <laughs> 2014. We had a young lady who was uh, a sort of a teenage prodigy, painter, uh, mother was an artist, father was a doctor, West Hills type of people um, who had gone to um, the Austin School of Fashion and was somehow invited to or or paid to participate in New York Fashion Week. And I don't know if it was the tent shows or the Nolcha shows, but she got an, a tremendous amount of press, tremendous amount of press. She was yeah. on Good Morning America, nice. uh, you know, the, the dream of every young 13-year-old designer. Um or at least their parents. Uh, so uh, Nordstrom uh, wanted to take a bite. Is, is, is Nordstrom the one in, in Dallas? Is that Nordstrom or is that, uh, um, um, what's the other big wealthy store? That white oh, a Texas-based. Oh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not sure. But I know that she just got like flooded with press and was the darling of Austin fashion week when, you know, was her design skills were very young and it was, that was hard for a lot of seasoned people. Sure. Uh, I am, I am looking up where Nordstrom is based out of because I want to make certain that I mentioned the right store. Oh, they're Mm -hmm. out of Seattle. So it's the other one, Uh, Bloomingdale's what, what's the big one in, in Dallas, Dallas based, uh, based department store. Hi, people. We actually do research. <laughs> Live. Live research <laughs> In the moment. Well, well, no, I actually do do. Uh, uh, it's, it's Neiman you Marcus. Do, I do. knew there were two words. So Neiman Marcus wanted to bite. This is a young Texas designer. Mm-hmm. She's had all this press. Um, so they came to us to source fabric for them, right? And she brought me all of her beautiful pieces and they had hand ombre and hand bleach. You know, it was all this tween angsty wear, very fun, very punk rock, a little grungy, but a little colorful, perfect for the 13 year olds in the middle of uh, the 2010s. And um, I said, well, where did you get all of this? And she said, well, mood. Now, I love Mood Fabrics as much as the rest of America does. Thank you, Mood Fabrics. They were brilliant. Uh, uh, business people by making the deals that they made with Project Runway to be their supplier for uh, promotional consideration. But Mood Fabric is a jobber. Mood Fabric is owned by some amazing people who uh, came to the country when Iran fell, and they were chocolatiers originally. These weren't even fabric merchants originally. Um, so I said, well, not a problem. I, I, I took all of her samples with me to Los Angeles to where the fabric all comes to America. Um, well, why aren't you going to New York? They asked. I said, well, because I'm going to go to where it comes in before it makes its way across the country to New York so that I can save you that transportation money. And people recognize some of the fabric. They're like, oh, that was seven years ago. So I Mm -hmm. had to re-resource her entire collection. We spent 17 days in LA to get her her order, to get her things that she was okay with using for this order for Neiman Marcus. And uh, then we also made all of the samples. She had a wonderfully talented dressmaker, but she didn't have somebody that could scale up to actual manufacturing. They had patterns that a dressmaker made sent to uh, a cut and sew in Dallas who uh, cut and sewed 
and sent back things that didn't fit because the patterns were made incorrectly or because the patterns were made with different seam allowance uh, than you do in a production pattern. So uh, we, we also took on her samples and, and Neiman Marcus did end up carrying her, but of course they wanted everything made in uh, China. They wanted uh, to make the most profit on it that they could. And while her entire gig was uh, tween sizes, they forced her to Neiman Marcus standard junior sizes as we all knew that they would. So her success ended up becoming a point of, uh, of, of near panic in realizing that a major American box store wanted to carry her line her entire line, and they didn't have the fabric for it. And in fact, they didn't have the technical patterns that needed to happen in a, in a manufacturing facility for it. No, and then, then when you're bound to such a large company, then you begin to make decisions about um, ownership of those patterns and the label and you begin to undercut yourself as a, as a designer. And I'm not saying that's what happened in this particular case. I'm just saying that those types of situations are the t ones that really change uh, a designer's focus and perspective um, because you get, you start making risks that are probably not beneficial. Exactly. And the retailer likes to drive the whole bargain. The retailer likes to be in charge because, again, they want to maximize profits on the square footage that they're allowing you to put your garments on. And, and uh, that's something that we all have begun to fight back on from we're not doing a season ahead. We're going to uh, do the runway show and it's going to be available for instant release uh, to we're not going to let you push us to have that made for 55 cents in a Rona factory situation that's going to kill people in Bangladesh. We're just not going to do it. So. You know, a, a lot of young designers get super excited about going to market if they have enough horse sense to even know what market is. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to sell to uh, Neiman Marcus or Bloomingdale's or Dillard's or Target or wherever. And, and, and I think, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, number one, it's unlikely that they're going to buy from you because you're so new and you don't have all of the tools that you need to actually make the sale. But number two, you wouldn't begin to know what to do to fulfill. And mm. I, I tell people who get picked up, I mean, this is one of the things that I told this particular young designer and her family is there is an excellent fulfillment agency in North Austin near Round Rock. Pay them whatever you need to to fulfill your orders and ship to Neiman Marcus because Neiman Marcus is going to give you a fulfillment Bible the size of the Bible. And if you don't get every bit of it correct, they're going to take points for everything that you were supposed to have done that you did incorrectly. You know, one of my first deliveries was to Barney's in New York back in the 80s. And um, dresses I was supposed to deliver on a Thursday. I was finished on a Tuesday and I felt so goddamn good about myself. I'm going to walk my fancy ass up there and hand them the boxes of dresses on a Tuesday and I'm going to have everything in there early. Arrgh, tragedy. I lost 20 points for delivering on the day that separates came in and not on the day that dresses came in. Mm -hmm. I lost five points because my hangers were fancier than the, what they wanted. I lost five points because I put fancier tags on and, and where I thought they should go, not where they actually wanted them to go. So I always, I'm sort of afraid of young designers and new designers who get these big box stores because that box store is going to chew them up. 
Yeah, like get a small boutique order that like right something there. that will get your feet wet. <laughs> sell eighty of something. Sell a hundred of something. Sell multiple pieces to multiple stores where you have a personal uh, interaction with the actual owner who is the buyer, um, where the stakes are not so high. And I and I'm not even suggesting that someone shouldn't. If, if Neiman Marcus or Bloomingdale's or Dillard's or Target comes to you and says we want to buy your collection absolutely say yes and then call somebody preferably us we'll help you to scale up um so it's it's a scary process isn't it megan it is scary and especially if you know your level of <clears throat> comprehension about that entire process has a lot to do with your success rate i would say um uh, it might be remedied by a crap load of money being thrown at it. And then somebody catching some of that money that knows what the crap they're doing. But <laughs> no, you're, you're, yes, you're right. I, I, you know, um, uh, I sold a, a quarter of a million units. Uh, well, don't, don't agree to supply a quarter of a million units. Tell them that you can supply a quarter of a million units, a hundred thousand, 50,000, 50,000, 50,000, or 100,000, 75,000, 75,000. And they think, well, why would I do that? Well, because the 100,000 is going to sell through. Mm -hmm. and, and there's going to be a demand for the next 50 or the next 75. Sell through is important. If you don't reach at least like 95% sell through at most of these big box stores, they will never purchase you again. If your yeah. stuff is going to end up on a clearance rack, you are off of the list of people that they want to buy from. So you drive your sell-through up by promising delivery of smaller units that have higher sell-through. Mm -hmm. There's a little trick of the trade. Y'all should pay me for that. <laughs> that's that's some aftercare content. Right that's there. some aftercare content. <laughs> we'll tell you how to really do it. Um, <laughs> but you know, and, and then that's that's just the sourcing. We've talked about the sourcing, and and you have to know where the hell to get your fabrics from, people. If if you are trying to make collections with fabric from Joanne Fabric, God bless Joanne Fabric and Crafts. They are not the place to buy fabric from. That is end use. Uh, textiles for the home market, you need to have a sourcing agent or you need to fly yourself to one of the places where fabric exists. And that's going to be either Los Angeles or New York. And yeah. if you are too lazy or too poor to do that, then you need to find yourself a sourcing agent who can help you. Yeah. And, and there are this entire section of the industry is flush with people trying to find designers that are wanting to buy wholesale because again there's loss in this industry for <clears throat> this con this consumable product um and so um people that are selling fabric the jobbers sourcing agents um not only for textiles but sourcing agents for sewing houses that are scaled to your needs they're out there you can search for them. <laughs> and, and maybe we should maybe we should define define some of those roles. Okay, mm -hmm. so um, a jobber is somebody who buys dead stock or end stock from apparel houses or from fabric mills. Mm -hmm. They buy fabric at a very discounted rate and then they resell it. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, Joanne is is a jobber 
slash um, retailer. They do have fabric that is specifically made for them, but a lot of their stuff is jobbed out. I, they, they buy it from a place in LA. Uh, they have three three warehouses the size of uh, the Superdome, and you have to be invited to even come in and buy fabric from them. And they're buying mm-hmm. that fabric by the pound, and nine times out of 10, they don't even know what the hell they bought. They bought it by weight to fill their stores and all of their discount racks and red tags and whatever they're calling those things now. Um, so if you're trying to buy from a, a store like that, you're buying from a jobber. Uh, jobbers are great for uh, one-offs. If the jobber has enough for a small run, absolutely, you should feel safe to buy from them. But know that a jobber is is the, the sixth person to touch the textile, the sixth person to touch that bolt of fabric. And every single person that's touched it has added a commission to it. Yeah. So while $3 may sound like a deal, uh, that fabric actually only costs 33 cents to buy absolutely wholesale and be the first person to touch it. So you have a jobber, uh, you have wholesaler, which is um, a step before jobbers. The wholesaler sells it to companies who then make apparel out of it or who sell it to um, companies who sell it to people who make apparel or sell it to companies who sell it to people who take it home and make costumes. Um, And above them, you have what we call converters. A fabric converter is somebody who buys gray goods. And that's spelled the French way, G-R-E-I-G-E. Gray goods come from the actual fabric mills. They are generally dye ready or ready to dye or ready to print. And they are converted into printed fabrics and dyed fabrics. Um, And then you have uh, uh, fabric technicians and fabric designers who will actually help you create your own fabrics so that the image that you had in your sweet little head of the exact fabric you want that no one's ever going to be able to find that you are now emotionally attached to and refuse to let go of, you can actually have it made when you mm-hmm. get successful enough, people. So those are kind of all the, all of the jobs in, in the fabric supply chain. I hope you don't mind that I that I uh, expounded on that as, as I often do. That's a whole module that I teach my textile students at university. But you have to understand those jobs to know that the closer you get to the top of that food chain, the fewer people that have touched that bolt of fabric, the less money you're going to pay. And obviously, uh, I, and you'll know this, Megan, as, as a person who's run a manufacturing facility that not only did your own stuff, but stuff for other people. Um, when people are putting together collections, they try to find the cheapest labor instead of the cheapest textile. It's like in a say, cheap tattoo. When I say cheap textile, I don't mean <laughs> um, uh, cheap quality textile, but inexpensive textiles. And I think mm-hmm. you're going to buy a thousand yards of this at $3 a yard and then try to pay me uh, some pittance to put it all together with your overly complex pattern that is ridiculous. And where where you could save your money is by saving $2,000 on your textiles. And then you can pay me what I'm worth and you'll still save $500 over the total cost of you buying the textiles with your with your credit card at Joanne and uh, trying to offer me $12 to sew a shirt that you're selling for $125 that is more complex than it has a right to be because you're not actually a designer <laughs> or a pattern maker. <clears throat> okay. That's true. Preaching to the choir, right? Okay. Hey, hey, ma'am, I have this idea uh, and I want you to build this this uh, gown that I can jump off of a building with and it'll turn into a hang glider and I have $75. I know. Like how many times have you heard that kind of science fiction bullshit, Megan? It's, it's, it's bad. Uh, you know, and, and when owning the factory where people could walk in with those ideas, 
was um, in a lot of ways worse. At least I can like filter, you know, outreach comments about, you know, I'm, I want you to pattern this thing. And then you get into it and they're like, they're, well, actually I want you to copy somebody else's thing and I want to put something on it. That's mine. You know, like right, it just right. is just so insidious. Um, you know, the bandwidth that people don't seem to have for what it takes to just even do something that's in their brain. Yeah, um, and just because you think it doesn't mean that it can become a reality in the fabric that you've chosen or, you know, any other myriad of things. Well, <laughs> that could be a whole series of podcasts. Oh, my God. Faux pas and fuck ups that you shouldn't make when approaching a manufacturer. And, and you know, I actually have a module that maybe uh, in the paid content, I will share some of my educational modules on things like that, um, because there there is a way to call and ask about textiles. There is a way to call and talk about manufacturing. I've never been afraid to let people know where I where I buy things from because I know if they actually try to call these people, they're going to get the phone hung up on them. It's fucking Los Angeles. They answer the phone with what? Mm -hmm. If you don't have the sense to know how to actually get on the phone with the person who's capable of selling your, your fabric or if you don't have the right uh, IN number, they, they're going to just hang up on you and they will recognize your phone number and block your ass. I mean, so I'm never afraid to give those resources because generally when a person tries to scoop me on supplying them fabric, they are so traumatized that they are happy that I'm making those phone calls for them. And, well, and, and I'm the something a little bit different, but in the same vein of they don't want to deal with a certain level of buyer, um, even if you are a wholesale buyer. But during the pandemic, when there was a just complete vacancy in the market of elastic, and it was something that I had in stock, Jesus. and you had in stock, and then and people are like, just tell me what your source is. And I'm like, listen, I've already reached out they are up to their eyeballs and people requesting elastic. The last thing they want to do is have you say, Hey, Megan sent me. Fuck no. right. I'm going to burn my bridge. They're never going to talk to me again. Uh, I had a client in Texas that we were going to do some uh, athletic wear out of, uh, out of some pet textiles. And he actually called one of my suppliers and told them that I told him to call. It damaged the relationship with that supplier. It took me years to get them over being pissed off that some uh, Yahoo jogger in Texas bothered them. Yeah. Uh, and wasted their time. So, you know, um, and then, then there's the, the, the sourcing is its whole thing. Then there's interfacing with a manufacturer. How do you choose a manufacturer? Uh, why would they choose you over me? Why would they choose me over White Star? Why would they choose White Star over you? Mostly because they want to square things sewn. Uh, and um, how does that work? You yeah. know, what do you specialize in, in your manufacturing? What, what, if I wanted to manufacture um, bras, I wouldn't come to me. Now we can do bras, but I would say, hey, check out uh, uh, um, this, this, this person specializes in bras. They're going to do a better bra than I ever could. They have all of the equipment that's specialized for making a lingerie and bras and underwear and bathing suits. Um, when you want some cute knit dresses, come back and see me because my equipment is specialized for knitwear. Yeah. And even if, you know, that wasn't necessarily in the cards for you as a person that is a project head and you reach out to somebody with a specialty, like, you know, I am being well paid as a project head. 
And I know that you are the best person to do this pattern work and you are the best person to do this sourcing work. And I'd like to form a team. Those things happen a lot. A lot. <laughs> in this a industry. I, I did an athletic uh, 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 workout where, where the, the top was more like a support bra. And I did not hesitate to call Miss Somerville and ask her for some pointers and show her what I was working on and get some guidance. And Megan has never hesitated to call me and get guidance on things that she thought would be more in my wheelhouse than hers. And I know in the past we have traded clients. Mm -hmm. like this is a client that, you know, I, I can make you your wedding dress. I cannot make you your dainty bits. I, that's, trust me, you want to go to this designer. So that, that's part of it. And, and in the manufacturing supply chain and in the manufacturing, um, um, sewing order, it is not unusual for one, one project manager to, to, uh, field work out to several factories. Uh, some things are made in line, in house, in one factory, but honestly, most of the apparel that all y'all are wearing is made by several factories. I'm the guy that specializes in putting on collars. That's all my company does. We put on collars all day long. So we get shipments of shirts without collars. I have the specialized machine to put those collars on faster than anybody. We put the collars on. We send it to the guy who does the buttons. And in fact, in L.A., when I'm uh, working with my industry partners out there, there's a massive warehouse, about eight floors. And I have communication with every floor. And I know who should cut my stuff. And I know who should assemble my stuff. And I know who should finish my stuff. And I go to L.A. to my trade partners when I need to scale somebody up or when I need to scale myself up. I can't single-handedly right now make, uh, you know, 100,000 dresses in three months. I don't have the capacity to do that uh, since COVID collapsed everything. So I, I know where to go. That's called scaling up. Yeah. And uh, people are so afraid of um, this mentality of, oh, I got to do it myself. And I think that that's a huge downfall. It's when... the project runway effect. Yeah. Like, make it work. Well, holy shit. Sometimes it just doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. <laughs> that no, there, that there always made no me so mad. No successful labor. Look, look, Halston was not sewing every fucking dress himself. Neither Carl Lagerfeld, with his, with his gloved hands and his crippled old body, was not sewing anything himself. Mm -hmm. Dior was not sewing everything himself. In fact, the only major design house uh, lead designer that I can think of that was sewing their own stuff was Alexander McQueen because he was trained on Seville Row to make suits. He would get down on his knees with a pair of scissors and work with his atelier, which shocked the French. They were mm -hmm. not used, they didn't know what to do with that. So um, what is your nightmare? Like, what is your nightmare scenario, Megan, when, when somebody comes to you asking you about, can you make my vision come true? Oh, gosh. I would probably say you know, really looking back at having my factories about somebody calling and saying, I want to set an appointment. They come in, you talk to them like for the first hour and you know, like, Oh, there's no can do, but like they, <laughs> yeah. then they go on for another couple hours about, you know, their actualized vision. But then when you start getting down to, the nuts and bolts of how this is going to roll out there is like oh well that's why i'm here you know you're gonna do that well like okay well that's fine 
but then you'll pay me to manage your project for you. And, and so I think that a lot of people have a disconnection about um, the magic that happens on the manufacturing end. You don't just walk in and say, I have an idea. I want you to make it and chop shop, get it done. Let's, <laughs> well, well, you know, you shouldn't walk in with an expectation, but so many uh, unseasoned greenhorns do. Right. Mm -hmm. It's so common. Uh, no idea how how much I, I want to have these 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 seventeen designs. Uh, I want you to uh, to to cut patterns for them, and I want you to grade them, and I want you to make me uh, samples. How much will that cost? Well, honey, I I can't even tell you until I've seen what you're talking about. Yeah, well, there, like seventeen. Okay, so like let's start a, with one. That, like like a pair of pants is that leggings or is that a a pair of of of, of denim pants with thirty two passes? Or is yeah. it like the, the riding pants I did for a client in the hill countries of Texas? And is it 122 passes to get all of the layers and padding together? Uh, those are going to be very different costs. So uh, I, my favorite nightmare client, and she didn't become a client because she was such a nightmare from day one. She wanted me to give her pricing, but did not want to show me uh, her concept for fear that I would steal it. Oh, I can't even tell you how many NDAs uh, right, right. I've signed. Jesus so, so, Christ. Yeah, I, number one, you're an idiot for not bringing an NDA. But I, I actually looked at this woman and I, I went to to uh, the cube in the middle of our fabric store in, in Southwest Austin was um, storage. And I pulled out a box that had um, sketches and design ideas that I have had for years that I've never gotten to. And I said, ma'am, I've got at least... 300,000 different ideas in here that I've never gotten to myself. What the fuck makes you think I'm going to want your podunk ass idea and that I'm going to need to steal it? I said, you do realize that at some point in time, you're going to have to show somebody what it is that you want done if you ever expect anyone to assess a price. <laughs> so she said, well, can you give me a round figure? I said, yes, ma'am. It's from two hundred to $200,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. Because I could think of some shit that I would charge you a quarter of a million dollars to to cut and to uh, create and to create a, a stitching order and a production flow and the amount of time it would take me to have the textiles built for you. And, and we did that for people. I mean, we, we developed textiles for people and they would pay us outrageously, but it's 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 all legitimate and man hours. So uh, you, you need to you need to not piss off your manufacturer the minute you open your mouth. Because they don't, mm -hmm. we don't have to work for everyone. None of us are desperate. By the it's, time we reach the point where we have a factory, trust me, we're not desperate. It's true. And once you've forged a relationship with a really good manufacturer, even a really good sample house, like part of you wants to really keep that sacred but at the same time you want them to have enough work so that they're free there for you next time but there's so many people that come to these sewing houses and they have the mindset of like you know this is just simple labor just get it done and treat treated us like garbage <laughs> like right? i like i can't my my mentor judy who's passed she I, witnessed sorry, a that's, that always makes me pause because she was a lovely lady she was like um 
chalk and cheese, you know, <laughs> just yeah, right, right. all the time. Like it didn't quite always, you know, get along, but at the same time, I really valued her realness. The, the original loved and hated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. She would have absolutely adored this too. Yeah. She would, she would have been our, our first guest quite honestly. But like Judy was there when I had a client show up, um, a day early for sample, something like that. And I'm like, it's just not finished. You know, you're here. I see you're here, but you know, I can't make it be done faster. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, they were just kind of really passive aggressive about like, well, I came all this way. And as soon as they left, Judy looks to me and she goes, and you let them talk to you this way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, go on, yes, Judy. Judy. Yes. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and I see a lot of that happening with the sewing um, professionals now with these novice designers um, and um, romanticized designers um, really treating them like garbage. It's, it, like it's that. hard. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the problems that I often had in Texas with potential clients whose money was good uh, at times when we could have used uh, an influx of money. But um, I, I, I won't be talked to like the backstairs help. Yeah. I'm sorry. I have a very specialized skill. I am one of the best at what I do. And uh, if you can't handle that, you need to go someplace else. And people coming in looking for me to knock off a Dior, people coming in looking for me to make the dress that they saw at David's Bridal for 3000 but they want me to make it for 300 mm. You know, get the fuck out, people. This is, this, is, this is the wrong approach. So when they come in and ask me how much it costs to make them a wedding dress, I would look at them and say, well, I'm going to just start by saying that I will sew you a tube that is unhemmed out of stretch knit, and that would be $900. My base cost is $900. So if you are here looking for a deal, I'm going to give you a map to go right up Jones Road into um, Westgate Shopping Center to David's Bridal. Mm -hmm. Because they are, the, they are the discount bridal store. I am not. I'm not insane, but I'm not cheap. Nothing about us is cheap. We do quality work. We, we're one of maybe a half dozen... Um, ateliers in the country that actually do real demi couture i mean we're doing it the real way so that that is not cheap to have done um and i also always tell clients uh, this is a two-way um interview it, it, i know you think you're here to interview me to see if i uh, uh, you know come up to the mark but i'm going i'm interviewing you too i won't work for a client that i can't stand there was one lady they they were offering me an, an incredible amount of money um to try to knock off Dior. And I said, well, I can give you something uh -oh. that of this, but I'm certainly not going to Benson? knock off a Dior dress. Are you insane? Uh, and so, you know, some quick sketches and they loved it. And and the daughter um, kept asking me, is, is, is your sewing room always this, you know, untidy? Is it always this chaotic? Is it always dirty? And uh, the more she talked, the more I wanted to just you know, I can't tell you what I wanted to do because I, I, it was not polite. Um, and, and her mother was such a lovely lady, truly, an Ann Richardson lady. And I finally looked at her and I said, ma'am, I am so sorry. I can't stand your bitch of a daughter. She is rude. She is obnoxious. She is entitled. She is spoiled. And I don't want to make her a dress. And she, she looked at me and she grinned. She said, what if I doubled it? I said, ma'am, you could quadruple it. I don't want to deal with her. 
Um, and I looked at her and I said, Princess, if you walk into somebody's atelier and it's not this busy and chaotic and filled with things in the process, you are in a place that you should run from. If you go into a, an atelier or a dressmaker's shop and it is clean and sparkling and spiffy the way that your romantic vision of how it should be, they are not busy. There is a reason they are not busy. As it stands, we have a wedding dress protocol. Everyone ends up in white smocks. We bleach the entire place. The dogs don't come in the entire time we're doing it. It is pristine when we do wedding because mm -hmm. we don't want to replace the fabric if something happens to it. But I can't work with you. And that's okay. And, and you know what, people? That's okay. It's okay it's to okay say, to say no, no to a client. And you know what else is okay, Megan? To fire a client that you said yes to that you realize you no longer want to work for. It's mm -hmm. okay to fire a client. If they are bringing you stress and grief, if you get get into the process and realize that the price that you quoted is too low and you're going to go out of business trying to make them their, their extravagant bullshit uh, that they don't have the budget for, fire them. Let them know that this is not going to work. And uh, here is the work that you've paid for. Thank you very much. Now, this brings us to another thing, Megan. And this is one that I know you're going to want to speak uh, to mm -hmm. probably at great length. Um, we both know a certain someone. Don't you love it when I start a statement that way? <laughs> we both know a certain someone who raised hell and told people that you were infringing on people's copyrights when you kept copies of patterns that you made for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I explained it to, I said, well, any professional pattern maker would. Uh, the client has buys the right to use the pattern, number one. We have signed a non-compete or an NDA, uh, number two. Number three, these idiots are going to lose their pattern. Yeah. They're like going to lose the digital file. Somebody's going to accidentally throw the, their pattern into the fire. I want you to give me another copy. And you're like, I, I did. I, you I have did, it. You know, so <laughs> I, have to, I have to have the master patterns to make copies from it. And here's the truth. No matter how different you think your fucking t-shirt is, a t-shirt is a t-shirt is a t-shirt is a t-shirt is a t-shirt. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are differences in the way they're constructed and there are differences in the way we cut them. But me keeping a t-shirt pattern that I made for your company is not illegal. It's not a crime. It's not me being shady. I keep those because I need to be able to recreate it when your stupid ass loses it, misplaces it, damages it. And also, because I have signed a, uh, an NDA and a do not compete, if somebody else comes in, I need to be able to make certain that the pattern that I'm making for them is not actually an exact duplicate. And right. by the way, I, I had some man that wanted to order 100 T-shirts from me, Megan. You're going you're gonna to love this. This is back in Texas. And he wanted a non-compete. He wanted me to agree to never make T-shirts for anyone else. And I said, baby, if, if you were ordering a million units, I might be tempted. But mm -hmm. dude, you're ordering a hundred units and you're going to ask me to never make a t-shirt for anyone else. Are you fucking insane? You can get bent. <laughs> you can just get bent, which is a Megan's polite Texas Denver way of saying fucked. And I believe I told him he could get fucked. I'm like, you can get fucked. Get, get the fuck out of here, dude. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, ooh. That's a big can of worms, right? Big can, right? <laughs> like this could be twenty. Like I said, it could be twenty-two episodes. So, um, what is how? How are we? How long have we been talking, Megan? Oh, uh, we're right about at forty minutes, like thirty-eight minutes. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm going to let you sum 
sum it up because we don't want to keep people for their entire lunch hour or you know a pre-coital glow before they they get busy and make some good things uh wrap it up well uh, you know i think that maybe kind of um revisiting this um for our last um um, series on the careers in fashion. Um, and I, I want to sit and think about that a little bit longer because I feel like I've got a lot to say about that. So I want people to stay tuned for um, next week when um, we go a little bit further into the same topic. I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to put a period there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause this may need a little more. And, and you know, I, I think this is something that we should uh, let our listening audience know. Um, when we cover a topic, it doesn't mean we're done with the topic. Oh yeah. We, and we welcome people sending us a message saying, I want you to talk more about this. And yep, not only do we welcome it, we hope that this is what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a list of things that we know need to be talked about. We're hoping eventually that you are all engaged enough that you continue to give us things to talk about. You need to tell us what you want to learn. You need to tell us what your problems are. This podcast shouldn't be an act of masturbation for Megan and I uh, on a grand level. This should be an interactive uh, communication and conversation with all of you. Um, we are willing to share our wisdom and our wit and our and our foul mouths, uh, in my case, and our assholeism with you. Um, take advantage of that. Use this as a resource. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll talk to you next week. It's been fun. Oh, like we're not going to talk before next week. But this is this is a good way to end the podcast. Yes, Megan, I will talk to you next week. <laughs> and everybody can join us on Friday. <laughs> Everyone can join us on Friday. Yeah, Friday we have another phone call. Mm -hmm. um, and, and today, uh, um, the phone call that we released today was really interesting. But I, I can't wait to see what we talk about on Friday. I have no idea. It's we want to keep fun. our phone call sections uh, really fresh um, so that they're relevant at least at the time that we have them. So um, definitely listen to the phone calls too. There's some really nice uh, hidden gems in those phone calls. There and is. I think it, it, they're pretty funny. I've actually listened to them. I'm like, oh, wow, we're a little bit funny. <laughs> we are funny. We're well, I will funny. talk to you soon. All right, Mama. I'll talk right. to you later. Bye. Give the littles my love. I will do that. And that was another riveting podcast. Thank you for joining us. This is your co-host, Benson. I'd like to remind you guys, if you'd like to find us on social media, our links are on our website. And our website is www.advancedfashiondisruption.com.